Good morning once again. Um, you know, I'm pretty short, and so I actually put a foot a stool back here. So if you can see me better in a opposition to other times I've preached, that's why. But when Scott came in here, he just looked so tall that I was kind of shocked. I'm sorry, Scott. I always put him on, on the spot, but that is why you can see me better. If you could please turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 7. That's Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. The Word of God reads, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you that we could come here and look into your word. Would you bless our time together? Would you help me, Lord, as I preach, that I may proclaim the excellencies of your word and of you, our King. We look to you for help and strengthening. Bless us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I was reading a book uh, by an author named Ed Welch, When People Are Big and God is Small. And he talks about self-confidence in the first chapter. How often if you go to any bookstore, there's rows and rows and rows of books that talk about self-esteem and self-confidence and codependency. And he talks about how, and this was almost 20 years ago, in our age, that's what we see as the plague of our time. That people aren't confident in themselves enough, not assured in what they're doing, that the problem is one of self-esteem. And he keeps going on in the book and asking, is that the question? Is that really the problem? Do people really just need a little bit more self-confidence and self-esteem? Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not saying the opposite, which is you should have no self-esteem, right? But is that the plague of our age and of our time? Paul today has reminded the Philippians that they should maintain a sound doctrine and not to be deceived by those who come with a false identity and confidence. There are those, as he puts it, that, do, that put their confidence not in Christ, but in the flesh. So as Paul transitions and begins comparing confidences, one, one in the flesh and one in Christ, he does so by an interesting self-disclosure. And he's building up for in verses 8 through 11 to show the true righteousness that is found only in Christ. Paul, in the previous verses, discusses a corporate we. He says, we are the circumcision. But in verse 4, he transitions to an I. If they have room for confidence in the flesh, I have all the more. Which, to us, may sound ridiculous, right? He gives one of the most interesting self-disclosures in the entire New Testament. Paul talks about who he was and what he did, and he gives an interpretive principle on which to judge true confidence. He gives insights into this and helps us understand the way that the world promotes for us to justify ourselves. You have to put your confidence in something. Everybody does. 
We put our confidence in things that make us feel worthwhile, important, right, blameless. Because in our hearts and in the heart of every person, there is a longing for righteousness. And it shows itself here in the text in the life of Paul. And he shows us three things. First, we are tempted to put our confidence in who we are. Second, we are tempted to put our confidence in what we do. And third, we need an external confidence. So first, we are tempted to put our confidence in who we are. And that's verses four and five, and it reads like this. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul begins to deal with those who wish to confuse sound doctrine. He begins by saying in verse 4 that if they have reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And what he proceeds to do isn't to justify putting confidence in the flesh. I want to make that clear. But it's to draw a comparison. Paul is being hyperbolic. But he's also being honest. He's being honest about the things which people are tempted to boast in. And he does so with two groups. And the first thing that he talks about is what we're going to talk about in the first point. He's talking about his pedigree, meaning it is not necessarily that which he has done, but his background and where he comes from. That's what we see in verse 5. He lists four things when he's talking about his pedigree. First, that he was circumcised on the eighth day. Second, that he was an Israelite. Third, that he was from the tribe of Benjamin. And four, that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And so we're going to talk about each one of those individually. First, Paul begins by saying he was circumcised on the eighth day. And it's easy to gloss over, but he's emphasizing certain things. And what he emphasizes is this. I am not a proselyte. I, wasn't, I didn't come into the covenant people later, but as a child, my family circumcised me on the eighth day. What was required by the law, I fulfilled. And not necessarily I fulfilled it, because he understands he was a baby, right? But that it was fulfilled in my family. He, he came from a good, observant family, and he himself was born into the covenant of God. Boasting in the flesh, as he's talking about here, can literally mean boasting in the flesh. Those rights and privileges that I had as an Israelite, I had those. I was circumcised on the eighth day. The people that are coming to Philippi, and trying to tempt them to not only believe in Jesus, but follow the Mosaic law, will have them be circumcised later in life. He's saying, that wasn't even required of me. I did that as a child. I was circumcised on the eighth day. He continues by calling himself, he is an Israelite. During the time, the term Jew was what was used by Gentiles to refer to Hebrew people. The way that Jewish people refer to themselves was Israelites, because the emphasis is on their ethnic identity as the covenant people of God. In the original language, the translation when it says of the people of Israel is actually slightly mistranslated, because a proselyte, if he was circumcised, would be called of the people of Israel. What he's saying is, I am of the family of Israel. In my blood runs the blood of the patriarch. He has a genetic bond to the covenant. That's what Paul is saying. 
a proselyte, again, could call himself of the people of Israel, but never of the family of Israel, which is a term that's used here. He continues once again. He doesn't only say, I was circumcised on the eighth day. He doesn't only say, in my blood runs the blood of the patriarch, but he goes deeper once again. And he says, I am of the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Benjamite. The tribe of Benjamin had many boasts within the Israelite people. Moses, in his final prayer for the tribe, said this of Benjamin, the beloved of the Lord dwells in safety. The high God surrounds him all day long and dwells between his shoulders. It was in their territory where Jerusalem was. They were the only tribe outside of the tribe of Judah that did not abandon the Davidic line. They were a respected and honored tribe even in their day. And Paul was a member of that tribe. Not only that, his namesake was of the first king of Israel, which came from that tribe. He was first called Saul. His imp impressive background comes to a zenith when he says, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. Since the nation had gone into exile, there had been a mixture, even in language. The New Testament is written in Greek, not in Hebrew. But even here, he's saying, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. Not only do I come from an observant family, not only was I born into the people of God, not only was I not only born into the people of God, but a very special tribe within the people of God, I maintain the language. Language in that time was tied with observance and the ability to hear and understand the revealed word of God during the day, during that day. Hebrew was spoken in the synagogues. And even with immigrant groups today, it is often sad when like second and third generations no longer keep the language. Because usually language is tied with culture. And that's what he's saying. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I keep not only the traditions of my fathers, not only does the blood of the patriarch run in my veins, not only do I come from an illustrious tribe of whose top member is my namesake, I maintain the language culturally. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. He is saying that boasting in the flesh here could be taken to mean as who he is in his pedigree. These are none, none of the things that he did. He can boast about who his ancestors were and his background. Confidence in the flesh can look like this. Boasting not necessarily in achievements, but in a, an ethnic identity or coming from a good background or a good family. He's saying that those who boast in the flesh can put their stock and their pedigree or background in order to think that that is what makes them right before God. And when you put your confidence in your pedigree, what you're actually doing is that you're saying that your righteousness and your blamelessness comes from this. And those who threaten the church of Philippi are putting their confidence in the flesh of their pedigree. But Paul does not put his confidence in the flesh. We too can put our confidence in our pedigree or in our lack thereof. Now I wanna be careful with this point. I think having a good background is a wonderful thing that some people have by God's grace. It is a wonderful and beautiful thing if you were born to a Christian family. And as far back as you can trace, your family is full of Christians that have been faithful and were upstanding members of society. The problem is not the background, but the point remains that Paul is making is this. Our background is not what gives us confidence before God. It is not what gives us our worth 
And it is not what provides us our quality. It is not what gives us our meaning and our purpose in life. Putting our confidence in the flesh can look like boasting about our family or doing it in such a way where the boast of our hearts is, can't you see how good I am? Look at where I come from and how amazing my parents or grandparents are. It is a reaction that sometimes bursts from arrogant hearts that say, don't you know, look how good and great I am. People do this in often subtle ways. It is, again, not wrong to rejoice on your parents and your grandparents or great-grandparents, but it is wrong to determine that we are righteous because of that or superior because of it. Your parents' faith will not save you. And at the same time, it is also wrong to think that you are irredeemable because you come from a bad background. That, in a way, is also boasting and putting confidence in the flesh. To say that where you were born or because of who your parents were, that you deserve nothing but hardness and sorrow is also putting confidence in the flesh. In that situation, we can say, if you only knew where I came from or who my family was, you would cast me out. When these things seep into our thinking, or as they do in our day and age, it really shows a longing for righteousness. Shame and boasting in backgrounds is a way that we show what it is that we put our confidence in. What we think makes us right and worthy to exist and to have good things in this world. Now we can be glad and thankful for parents and grandparents. I'm thankful for my parents and my grandparents. And we are allowed to recognize how sin has affected our family and how the fallenness of this world has seeped even within our own family relationships. But the issue is not just in the things. It is not just the backgrounds. It is in our hearts that we are tempted to put confidence in those things. And we are tempted to put our value in our pedigree, like Paul. The temptation of our heart shows itself when we judge ourselves and others, when we think about backgrounds. This type of confidence in the flesh is subtle, but it has devastating consequences. We can look at someone and see their family, and in our hearts a sense of superiority and disdain can seep. We can look at ourselves in comparison to others and think about where we come from and feel ashamed and disdain for our background. But our pedigree is not what gains us access to the gates of heaven. Our ethnic or familial background is not on the list of requirements to be called a child of God. Sinners in need of grace are born in brothels and they're born in mansions. We can't judge people by where they come from. And although it is important to recognize the effect of the fall in our backgrounds, it is not what we put our confidence in. So if Paul says we can be tempted to put our confidence in our backgrounds, what else does he say? And that's our second point. We can be tempted to put our confidence in what we do. And that's verse 6. And starting in verse 5, going into verse 6. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, under the law, blameless. Paul transitions and he explains this is not just with his pedigree, but his actual choices that he made and the achievements that he held. And that's what we read earlier in the scripture reading. He had three examples in this matter. He was a Pharisee. He was zealous in persecution. And he was blameless under the law. 
So let's look at each one of those again individually and one, one by one to see what it is that Paul is saying. First, he talks about being a Pharisee. The people who were in the circumcision party were most likely converts who were Pharisees and wanted to demand strict adherence to the Mosaic law. Paul was a Pharisee before his conversion. He followed a strict regimen of laws and even extra laws in order to be more closely regarded as blameless. Pharisees would say, if you're walking down the way on the Sabbath, you should not spit on the side of the road just in case it lands on a seed and it germinates because that technically counts as work. They followed strict regiments. There were these things called bleeding Pharisees. In order to not look at a woman lustfully, they would walk around with their heads up and they would hit so many things that they would call the bleeding Pharisees. He followed a strict regimen of laws. He was not only a Hebrew of Hebrews by birth, but he also chose to be more devoted than others. He was more strict more scrupulous, more studied, and even better regarded in Israelite society. That's what he says in Galatians. I far outdid all others who were my age within my own people. He had been trained by Gamaliel, who was a strict practitioner, and you see that in the book of Acts. He had all the qualifications and training to be respected by his peers. He had every reason to boast about his choices in the matter when it came to devotion to God. He was not a lax disciple. He would call himself a true believer. He then describes how putting confidence in the flesh can look like putting confidence in the level of devotion that you have and how good you are at it. That was common for Pharisees, which he's referencing here. He also elaborates this further by his next phrase, a persecutor of the church. This may to us, since we are the church, seem like a strange thing to boast about. But Paul was pushing the envelope. He was so dedicated to the customs and the way of life which now threatened Philippi. His devotion was far greater than those false teachers who now seek to infiltrate. Imagine Paul saying it like this, they just want you to be circumcised because of their devotion to the law of Moses. I was so devoted that I devoted myself to the shedding of blood. He is saying that confidence in the flesh is seen in an almost fanatical devotion and blindness. He was not only a Pharisee, but a truly devoted and dedicated Pharisee. Paul is not saying that he was justified in his actions of persecution. Right? The rest of his life and letters show that. Rather, he is saying that these people who are coming to you to lead you astray have a resume, and on the list of qualifications, it's adherence to the law and devotion and seal. He's saying, I far outstrip them all. If we put our resume next to theirs, it doesn't compare. And he says, showing confidence in the flesh can show itself in what we do by misguided efforts that end up harming those around us. And the final phrase that he uses here, as we see it too, is actually the most difficult out of a list of difficult phrases. Paul says, according to the righteousness under the law, blameless. So all of our ears should have perked up. Was he really blameless? I had somebody ask me this week, was Paul lying? Well, could he really say that he was blameless under the law? And it's good to separate it. He is not saying that he's righteous because he followed the law but he's talking about externally. He's listing a resume and a list of qualities. On the onset, Paul is not saying that we can become righteous under the law. That is not his point. 
He is saying that if we are basing things on the standard of the law, as far as his confidence in the flesh, he was blameless. He's saying that if you were to bring the standards of the law against him externally, he had no faults. Nobody could bring an accusation outside of God. Like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus, and when Jesus asked him to observe the law, he said, these I have kept from my youth. However, we know in other writings of Paul that what he came to struggle with and wrestle with was his heart. In Romans 7, when he talks about sin, he talks about the last of the Ten Commandments. Covetousness. Why? Out of all the things, the one that you don't really see, the one that's really in your heart, you can be covetous without anybody noticing. Murder people usually notice. Paul is writing out a resume and in a weird mental exercise to show the folly of putting confidence in the flesh, he begins to list things. He says, look at this list. It is not only my background, but my choices and my devotion and my actions. My resume is spotless. I made all the right choices. I was respected and honored. I, was, I did what I was supposed to, but... And that's what the next verse will help us with. That's when we'll see the final comparison. But for now, it is good to say that Paul came from a good family and he had done good things. He was externally blameless. And that is what confidence in the flesh looks like as Paul explains it. Paul explains that confidence in the flesh is a boastful attitude towards our achievements and our accomplishments. I have a lot of trees in my backyard. I, some of you are my neighbors, so I already want to apologize. Because raking leaves is just, can we talk about that for a second? And I just, I'm thinking about it right now, and I, I probably should do it tomorrow. But have you ever raked all your leaves, and you put it in the bags, and you put it in the corner, and you do it not when the truck stops coming because you know like if you do it too late you have to put the bags of leaves in your garage I don't know if you've ever been in that situation because you don't want them to get wet but you you finish raking your leaves and you look at your yard and you just think to yourself I did a good job you're like or you ever mold your lawn in the summer and you look at it and there's a deep sense of satisfaction is Paul saying that that's wrong is Paul saying that when we do our work and we look at it, that that's what we shouldn't enjoy? That we shouldn't enjoy a job well done? I don't think so. I should say that clearly. No, that's not what he's saying. The problem, as Paul describes it, is if you were to rake all your leaves and you put everything there, and then you look at your neighbor's yard, and they haven't raked their leaves, and in your heart you say, What's wrong with them? Why can't they be responsible like me? Why can't they make good choices like me? Why can't they get their act together like me? It's not even that hard. That's putting confidence in the flesh. Confidence in the flesh can look like putting confidence in our achievements. The issue is an issue of the heart. It is not wrong to rejoice over a job well done or a desire to do things better, but our hearts. The problem is not the achievement, but what our hearts do with it. 
It is when we look at the things we have accomplished and we desire to exalt ourselves and put down others. Or when we look at the littleness of our accomplishments and we wish to demean ourselves. What do you boast in? Maybe it's not in an offensive way, but in, in a way that is good for modern sensibilities. Those moments where your heart exalts itself and you pat yourself on the back and say, look at how great I am. Or vice versa, those moments where you are downcast and you say to yourself, I am nothing. I am less than nothing. Both are putting confidence in the flesh. You can put confidence in the flesh by boasting about all the books you have read or how you don't focus on reading, you focus on doing. You can boast in the flesh about how responsible you are or the fact that you don't worry about little things like other people. You can boast in the flesh by boasting on your political engagement or views or by saying, I don't engage politically. That's just too tumultuous. You can boast in the flesh in how well you manage your money or how generous you are. We can put our boast in the flesh in titles or the fact that we don't care about titles. Do you boast in your looks or your abilities or your intellects or your strength or the fact that you don't worry about all those things? The list goes on and on and we constantly strive to put our confidence in the things that we do, but that points us to the error. Again, the error is not in the thing itself, but in our hearts. It is good and right for you to rejoice and feel satisfied when you get a new job, when you buy a house and when you graduate college. I, I rejoice when I get a good lunch on a Sunday afternoon. I'm like, that is good, right? But these things are not what make you right before God. It is not what will satisfy your heart fully. We can and should enjoy these things, but all things must be in their proper place. Jesus said it like this in his parable. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Does God hate barns? Does he only hate bigger barns? The problem isn't the barn. It's not even the land that produced plentifully, but that in those things, a man tried to find the satisfaction for his soul. And in his boasting, he showed what his wealth was. What you boast in is where your wealth is in. It is where you value, and it is where your heart is. And when your heart is, that is your treasure. So then what shall we treasure? Paul had all these things that he could have boasted in, but he boasted in something else. And that's when we come to the third point. We need an external confidence. And that's verse 7. And it reads like this. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever confidence is in the flesh is nothing in comparison to Christ. Paul does not mince words. He does not say that all these things are evil, but in comparison to Christ, he says that they are worthless. The circumcision party promised those who they aimed to persuade 
that if you follow the Mosaic law and all its stipulations, you would be right with God. You could gain that which Paul had by birth. Paul, in a way, says all these things which he had and had gained, he would count as a loss for the sake of gaining Christ. When he says that, Paul is talking about that which he based his entire life on, that which drove him to persecute others, that which drove him to make decisions in his entire adult life until he walked to the Damascus Road. Not only his lineage, but his lifestyle. Everything that he had come to put his confidence in made to be nothing in comparison to Christ. The question then becomes is this, what does it mean to put our confidence in the flesh and what does it mean to put our confidence in Christ? Here, what Paul is talking about, and that's what he'll elaborate on further points, is the question of righteousness. The question which we belong dealing with when we talked about confidence. Paul has shown and when we put our confidence in those things, we show that there is a longing for righteousness. Paul also showed how he longed for righteousness. So he put his confidence in his pedigree and he put his confidence in his actions. But these were not able to satisfy. The solution for that longing and that need shows itself here and will continue to be shown in the rest of this section. We need an external source of confidence. If we cannot justify ourselves and make ourselves right with who we are or with what we hope to do, how shall we seek righteousness? And that is the sort of stark realization that Paul had. That is why he counts all things a loss in comparison to knowing Christ. And how does that look like for us? Many years ago, I led a Bible study on Romans, and we got to the question of righteousness, and I said, we all long to be righteous with God. And a non-Christian looked up at me and said, no, I don't. I don't want to be righteous. And it kind of threw me off for a second, and I was like, well, you should, right? <laughs> but what Romans and what Philippians teaches us, it's not only that we should, is that we all do. That putting our confidence in these external or internal in our pedigree or in our achievements shows the longing for righteousness in our hearts. And if I could meet with them again, I, I would say this, you do. Every person longs for righteousness, whether they acknowledge it or not. And that's why putting our confidence in Christ, as Paul talks about it here, is such an important thing. So how do we put our confidence in Christ for who we are? You know, putting our confidence in our backgrounds is a rather silly thing. Since if we all trace our ancestry far back enough, we have a common ancestor named Adam, from whom we do not inherit righteousness, but corruption. We have inherited death and corruption, and although we are made in the image of God, that image of God is not destroyed, but corrupted and affected by the fall. We see that in Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number 19. I'm going to quote it as much as I can. What is the misery of that estate wherein two men fell? And the confession says this, all, ma all mankind by their fall lost communion with God are under his wrath and curse and so made liable to all the miseries in this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. And that is the inheritance that we have as a people, regardless of whether they were born in a mansion or in a brothel. 
but Christ brings us into a new family and gives us a new pedigree. Paul says it like this in Galatians, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. God has brought us into a new family and has adopted us as his children. And that is true for every person that puts their faith in Christ regardless of who their parents were. This is what it means. We don't have to boast or be ashamed about our backgrounds. We don't have to try to feel superior or below others. In the church, we are the body of Christ. This is the tie that binds. Let us not shame each other for those things, nor elevate others for their backgrounds. Today, maybe you feel like your confidence or righteousness comes from your background. And that can show itself in your boasting and in your shame. But I want to encourage you that in Jesus Christ, if you put your faith in him, we are a new creation and we have a new family. So what does that look like when we put our confidence in our achievements? And what does it look like for us to put our confidence in our achievements in Christ. We talked about putting confidence in the flesh by putting confidence in the achievements. And again, I just want to say this clearly. That doesn't mean you can't enjoy a job well done or a meal well prepared or a house well cleaned or a spreadsheet well managed. That doesn't mean you can't rejoice when you have a new job or a new house or new relationship. Rather, it is saying that our standing before God is not dependent upon our achievements. We see that in Ephesians 2 when Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, four good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We see two things clearly here. First, our works is not what gains us access into the gates of heaven. We are not adopted because we do good works. We do good works because we are adopted in Christ Jesus. It is not saying that you should not care about what you do and how you live your life but rather from the righteousness of Christ, what overflows is good works in our lives, which God has prepared beforehand. The gift here is not that we don't care about what we do, but that we are confident in the work of Christ. And that shows itself in our lives, in how we treat others, in how we treat our family, and in how we drive. And I'm saying that to myself. I need to grow. But that obedience, but the good works that overflow in our lives is fueled by the work of Christ. We see that in the Ephesians passage. The problem is not in the works. It's in our hearts. 
And but when we put our confidence in Christ, what overflows is good works. So today, perhaps you have put your confidence in your pedigree or in your achievements. And it is not that you can't rejoice over our family or be aware of how sin has affected our families. And it is not that you should not care about what you do. But what makes us right before God, what makes us confident when we stand before him in the judgment day, is not our pedigree nor our works. It is the work of another. And that is why Paul can stand and say, this resume that I had, it is not what gains me access. But I count all things a loss in comparison to gaining Christ. So let us put our confidence, not in ourselves, not in our pedigree, and not in our achievements, but let us put our confidence on the solid rock foundation that is only found in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord, we come to you as people who are tempted at times to put our confidence in who we are and what we do. But we look to you, the one who did all things well, the true son of God who came to save sinners like us. Lord, we may be tempted to say in our hearts that we are good people, that we do good things. But as 1 John says, if we say that we have no sin, then we are liars. Lord, we have sinned, but we look to you. And we're assured that in your son, in Jesus, that we can draw near. Help us, Lord, as we walk throughout our days to not put our confidence in the flesh and in ourselves, but to put our confidence in you. And what would overflow in our hearts would be a joy and a dependence and works that are though faulty would be sincere for your glory and that your name would be glorified among us. That thankfulness and joy would overflow from our realization that it is you who saves. That it is not our backgrounds nor our achievements which gain us access to your throne, but it is the work of Christ. And so we look to you, Lord. We put our hope and our confidence in you, even when things around us go astray, even when we fail, even when we're not good enough. Lord, we bank on the righteousness of Christ and we put our hope squarely in you and we put our confidence in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.